0: All right, I've got my clicker all set. My water's back here. You know, it's such a pleasure to be up here teaching on the book of Acts um, and to do this each and every week. The book of Acts is one of my favorite books, and I've heard from you guys as well. It's For some of you, it's your favorite book as well. This is up there, probably my top five uh, books of the Bible. It's a history book, and I love history. And I love the history of our movement. And um, it's... It, it delves into that. Before I forget though, these three guys are men that I know from Uganda. Uh, Their names are Nicodemus, Silas, and Antoni. They're looking to go to college and they're very intelligent men, very motivated men, but they live well below what we even comprehend of of the poverty line. Um, Somewhere between three to five dollars a day is their their average income, what they live off of. Um, They wanna study law, education, and engineering at university and they're very capable. They pass their secondary classes with flying colors, very, very intelligent young men. And, uh, but they need help financially to be able to do that. Um, it's very minimal. It's one to $3,000 per year at university there in, in the city of Kampala. If you'd like to help with that in any way, come see me and we'll, help, we'll try to figure out how we can get you. If you'd like to donate towards sponsoring them to go to college, um, this is an amazing gift for them and will change their family tree hundred um, percent of the money that you give will go towards the university fees and typically we pay directly to the university so they don't actually see the money they just get to sit in the class so that way there's l- little room for them um, squandering the money not that these guys would ever do that these guys are leaders in the messianic community there um, they serve with they do liturgy they serve with um, teaching Hebrew uh, they do a lot of children's ministry um, and those sorts of things the youth ministry so these guys are, are servants as well within their local congregations. But all right, let's do a little bit of review what we learned last week on Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one. Well, let's, let's ask, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke did, Luke did. Who wrote, in terms of word count and volume, who wrote most of the New Testament? Luke did. Yeah, you might say Paul did. No, it's actually Luke. Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament. Paul is 23% of the New Testament. All right, so Luke went out there. Um, in Acts one, remember, we lost one of the disciples. His name was Judas, right? He kills himself because of grief of over betraying Yeshua. Well, how, how did they, who did they uh, select to be the 12th position, the 12th disciple? You guys remember? Mattathias. Good, good. And then why did they stop at 12? Why did they go to like 25 or 30 or something like that? It corresponds with the 12 tribes of Israel. It corresponds with the 12 seats of judgment in the new Jerusalem, the 12 gates of Jerusalem. Yeah, the 12 is a very important number in terms of the, the essence of the gospel. Yeshua came. To, to bring in the 12 tribes of Israel, right? What does the ascension of Yeshua connect to in the prophets? You guys remember that? Daniel 7 and the enthronement of the Son of Man, the enthronement of Messiah. If you read Daniel 7, anybody read Daniel 7 this past week? Good, good. Daniel 7, it describes that enthronement process, that ascension process. And then we talked last week about the Sabbath day's walk. What was that? Remember, in Exodus, it says, on the Sabbath... What was it? 2,000 cubits. 2,000 cubits, which is your fingertip to your elbow, okay? 2,000 of those. Remember, in Exodus it says, on the Sabbath day, don't leave your place. Well, what does your place mean? Your city. Well, the rabbis say, inside the city limits, there is no limit of travel, that is your place. But outside, or inside, that that is your place, there is no limit. But outside the city, it's a limit of 2,000 cubits. And so we see in um, Acts 1, the disciples are leaving Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives, and they're traveling the 2,000 cubits down into the Kidron Valley, back up into the city of Jerusalem. They didn't, they didn't uh, trespass against that restriction on travel distance. Okay? It says they traveled the Sabbath day's journey back into the city. All right. But that's important. Many times you just gloss over that. If you don't know Jewish history, um, then you just kind of gloss over that. You, you don't, know, you don't see that. I put this slide up last week, but I didn't talk about this slide. Um, some of you saw it and you did your homework. How many of you read Acts two? Ten and nineteen. Anybody? How many of you read Acts chapter two in preparation? Good. Most of you did. Excellent. Did anybody get the Greek word used for tongues or language in Acts two eight? Anybody? Glossal, yes. It's glossa, glossa. All right. And then um, it's the same word used in Acts two eleven. Uh, does this miracle of linguistic bridge building does it ever appear anywhere else in the book of Acts? Did you guys find that? Mm-hmm. The answer is yes. And we're going to get into that, obviously, as we, as we continue our, our journey through Acts. What about the rest of the Bible? Do you see any miraculous linguistic bridge building in, anywhere else in the Bible? Yeah. Yes, when the Torah was given. When the Torah was given. Good. We're going to talk about that today. So I don't want you to steal my thunder. Okay. Stand there down. was a lot of thunder, as a matter of fact. Yeah. We have people who've been in the Messianic walk for 20 years in this room. We have people who've been in the Messianic walk for two weeks in this room. That demands kind of a quick refresher on the biblical holidays and what they are, when they fall. And here they are right here laid out. You're divided into two categories, and these are all listed out in Leviticus 23. You have the spring holidays, and then you have the fall holidays, both corresponding to times of harvest in the land of Israel. The first one is Passover. Yeshua died on Passover. Unleavened bread comes next. He was buried and resurrected on firstfruits. And then we're going to see he pours out his Holy Spirit 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. So this is known in Hebrew as Shavuot, or Pentecost in English. It's the 50th. Then there's a long pause in the summer. Then we start with trumpets. Then we go to the Day of Atonement. Five days later, the Feast of Tabernacles. And then what we're in the middle of right now, that is Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. Okay? That's a quick kind of crash course on the Torah holidays, on the, what we call the Mo'adim, the Appointed Times. So you see, Yeshua overlaid additional meaning and, and importance upon these ones, but not so much these ones. And many people think prophetically that he will overlay additional meaning on these ones in his second coming. All right? This day right here, and we're gonna talk a lot about this day, Shavuot, Shavuot, or Pentecost, the 50th day. By the times of Yeshua, this day on the calendar, Pentecost, what we see in Acts chapter two, It was connected to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. And in fact, this day, to this day, Shavuot, is seen today in all of Judaism as the anniversary of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, okay? So it's customary that you stay up all night, that night before Pentecost, before Shavuot, and you study the Torah and do things like that. But it's all about about rededicating yourself to the law of God, okay? It's not a Christian holiday, although Christians, some denominations, do celebrate it. This goes back 3,000 years to the times of Mount Sinai. How many languages, we're going to talk a lot about languages today. How many languages do you guys speak in this room? Somebody tell me, anybody bilingual in here, two languages? Anybody? You are? Anybody else? They they always say, when you're in a foreign country, how do you know which ones are the the Americans? They only speak one language. It's Very true. In a lot of countries you go to, uh, they're trying to learn our language. They're trying to learn the language that you're hearing me talking right now. But yeah, so there's very little languages represented in this room, right? But you go to many other countries and they learn easily three, four, five languages sometimes. Right? And a funny story, I was in um, Uganda back in June and I went to this very remote area of Uganda and I was in the car with people who spoke English and a native language called Lusoga. Then we, we drove about 30 miles north and we cross over this river and the people who are in the car with me cannot understand the people that we're now surrounded by because they speak a different language. I'm trying to remember the, um, to remember the name of the language, doesn't matter. Completely different language, not even related remotely, no words in common with each other. Just 30 miles away, in the same country. In Uganda, there's upwards of 52 languages, give or take, in the country of Uganda. It's amazing. And that's just one country and one continent in the world. But one fascinating thing about this is I could go those 30 miles north, and they could understand me speak English. They couldn't understand the native Lasoga speakers in the car, but they could understand me speak English. So everyone defaulted to English, and we were all speaking English. Very fascinating, right? Which is a funny story. But in the Hebrew language, there's actually two different words for language, and they both carry with them very different connotations. The first one here, maybe some of you Hebrew students can pronounce this word. Safa. 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 Yeah, we have a sin, a fe, and the he. Safa. This literally means the banks of a river or the shore of an ocean or your lips. You might think, what is the banks of a river or the shore of an ocean? What do those have in common with your lips? Well, you know, sometimes if you look at a river, I just spent nine days on the river, on the Choktahatchee River with Noah um, a few weeks back. And a river has an interesting uh, thing. It, It can actually be very beneficial if you live on the river. But as we began kayaking past houses, were these houses just sitting on a, just a, right on the ground, on a foundation? No, they were sitting up on stilts many times. Why? Because that river tends to flood and it overspills its banks and it becomes very destructive. So it may be very nice to look at and may be very practical to live near a river for fertilization and those kinds of things. So like if you're farming, right? But then sometimes it over floods its banks and it becomes destructive. Our mouth has the same tendency. We can be very productive, very nice to be around. As long as our lips contain the contents thereof, right? As long as they don't cause any destruction. But as soon as they become destructive, man, it becomes very dangerous. And, I mean, remember a couple months back when, uh, was it in Tennessee, that really bad flood happened? And people were just, I mean, working at a Dollar General. And then suddenly the Dollar General was just like, like a, like a river was literally flowing through it. And it's just like in a flash. And that's, that's how our, our mouths, that's how our, our language is. But there's another Hebrew word for language, and that is this right here. Lashon. Lashon. This literally means your tongue, okay? And how your tongue moves and produces syllables. All right? Now, Safa, the the Hebrew scholars of the Bible say that Safa is more of a outward kind of manifestation of your language. Safa, okay? So, you know when I was in the car with the Ugandans and they spoke Lusoga and they spoke English? What do you think was their heart language? Lusoga. Lusoga. That was their Lashon. But what was their Safa? English. English. That was like, it was, it was there, but they don't really internalize it, okay? Like if, if someone from, you know, uh, Carla and Fabian are not here right now, but if Carla and Fabian walked in, they could understand my English to a certain extent. But what is their lachon from Costa Rica? Spanish, Spanish Espanol, right? That's their, so you get the difference there between the two? you understand that now? Okay, that's two different connotations. Let's look at Genesis 10, because before we get into Acts 2, we have to look at Genesis 10 and the first time that people start to divide themselves over how they speak. Because people like to gather with people that speak the same language. So look at Genesis 10. This is called the table of nations. Look at Genesis 10, the table of nations. And I think we're gonna jump in. It's talking about all the descendants. And it says, let's look at verse, uh, I don't know, we could verse, pop in at verse um, 20. Genesis ten twenty. These were the descendants of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, and in their lands and in their nations. Now let's look at verse thirty one. These are the descendants of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands and in their nations. Now look at verse thirty two. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations and their nations. From these, the nations of the earth were divided up after the flood. But well, how do they divide up? Based on their languages. Based on their families. We tend to do the same thing. You ever been into a place like an airport, you tend to gravitate towards people who are speaking the same language. You're looking for someone, especially if you're in a foreign airport, you're looking for someone who's going to speak the same language because, you know, you need help, you're lost, or you, just, you, you want to talk with someone. Um, but these are... This is a map showing the table of nations and where these different descendants of Noah went and where they divided themselves. And this right here, the Shemites, this is where we get the word Semitic, Shemitic from. These are the Shemitic peoples there. But yeah, they divide it by their language, right? Well, let's look at Genesis 11 because we're going to see the very first time that God interacts with our Lashon, our language as humanity. Look at Genesis 11. It says the whole earth used the same Safa. Interesting. It doesn't use Lashon there. It uses Safa, that outward, kind of more artificial dynamic. They, were, they all used the same Safa, the same words. And it uses the, the Hebrew, they, they had a, a Devarim Echad. It came about that as they traveled from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shin Ar. And they lived there. And they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and bake them in fire. So they had bricks for building stone and clay for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves an ear, and a city, with a tower, a migdal, that has its top reaching up into the heavens, Shemaim, so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. Interesting. So what were their goals here? They didn't want to be like God, per se. It doesn't say that. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and then what? They didn't want to be scattered. They wanted to be united. Yeah. That's the great. That's the grievous sin. But let's extrapolate them. If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, God says, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the face of the earth and they stopped building the city. So the city was partially built, right? Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord Balal, and he confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. And that word for disperse there is the idea, it's, it's the Greek, uh, um, Hebrew word putz, which is the idea of taking a handful of seeds and scattering them, throwing them like that, putz. It's the word that's used repeatedly for when God scatters Israel into the nations. So, what was the end result? What they didn't want. What they didn't want. What they were trying to avoid. They all spoke different languages, and they all got scattered. Right, and the city did not get built. It's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. What did he not do? He didn't destroy the city. He didn't destroy them. Right. He didn't kill them. He just scattered them. It's like a, it's like a divine punishment. You know, Luke 14, Yeshua talks about the unfinished tower. You guys remember that? Which, which one of you sets out to build a tower without weighing the cost? Huh. Maybe he's talking about the Tower of Babel. And they, they don't finish it. So the Tower of Babel is all about fame at the expense of others. This is from the Midrash, an ancient rabbinic uh, text, it says that all these people and all the families divide themselves into three parts. The first said, we will ascend into heaven and fight against him. The second said, we will ascend to heaven and place our own gods there and serve them. And the third part said, we will ascend to heaven and smite him with bows and spears. And God knew all their works and all their evil thoughts. And he saw the city and he saw the tower which they were building. And when they were building, they built themselves a great city and a very high, strong tower. And on account of its height in the mortar and the bricks did not reach the builders in their ascent to it until those who went up had completed a full year. So in other words, it took you a full year to ascend this thing, they're saying. And after that, they reached the builders and gave them the mortar and the bricks. Thus, it was done daily. And behold, these ascended and others descended the whole day. And if a brick should fall from their hands and break on the ground, and get broken, they would all weep over the brick. And if a man fell and died, none of them would look at him. Pharaoh says in Exodus 5, require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. We'll make the work harder for the people so that they will keep working and pay no attention to the lies. You see, who built the Tower of Babel? Who Who was the foreman of that? Nimrod was. Men like Nimrod don't care about human lives. They care about the progress of their legacy and their renown, right? What's interesting about that is many times they start off actually pretending to care about human lives, but all the while exploiting them. So be careful. There are still Pharaohs and Nimrods out there. Here's some instructions pertaining to the altar. This is why God says, when you make me an altar, I don't want you to make bricks. Bricks symbolize effort and your works, and your attempts to gain righteousness. Stones are a symbol of my unaltered creation. That was, crea- that was creation acting on creation. Make it out of that, which is a symbol of humility, right? That's again, brick versus stone. Bricks represent our taking his creation and manipulating it to our benefit. We change its natural state. Whereas stone represents God's providence through his creation. Which one was the temple made from? Here in 1 Kings 6-7, When the house or the temple was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Interesting. Humans love towers, don't we though? <laughs> we love them. It's so funny how we love them, right? We got like these very historic towers, which I've been to and seen, you know, in person. And then this was it rebuilt here. This is the One World Trade Center. And everyone's trying the same thing. They're like, hey, can we get the highest tower, right? Can we make a name for ourselves? So this ends up in some textbook or whatever. And then here, here's the Burj Khalifa in the city of Dubai. Anybody ever seen this? I flew by this as I left the airport in Dubai. It was just amazing. You're, you know, I don't know how high it is, but it's fascinating. It's so surreal to look at it in person. But building societies is our way of proving that we are like evolving. There's a school of thought called um, social Darwinism that says that humanity should be furthering this evolution process and it's rooted in the teachings of Marx, Karl Marx, right? The German philosopher that came up with communism. He says, Marx would say, humanity must labor cooperatively in order to survive and free ourselves from the natural constraints. Marx would say, you must labor, you must work. I will tell you where to work, how long to work and what your wages will be. That's what Marx's theory and, 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 and communism says, right? But here's what the God of Israel says. I don't care where you work or how long you work or what your wages are as long as you rest. You see the difference? See the difference? Take one-seventh of your week and take it off and rest. Stop working. Stop trying to build. Stop pursuing your efforts. Stop trying to increase your salary and make a name for yourself and chase after my name. You see, humanity imposes while God invites. I'm inviting you to my Sabbath. Many times, unfortunately, in the messianic world, we do the same thing. We think, ah, we've got something here. Let me impose this on people. Let me bludgeon them with this. Let me take the Torah and just pound it over the head until they get this, right? But that's ungodly. That's un-Messiah-like. He invites. He's a gentleman, right? He's not going to force you into his presence. One of the tools used for this imposition is our ability to communicate through speech, right? Anytime Alexander the Great conquered a new territory, one of the first things they did was set up uh, schools where Greek was taught. Because Alexander knew that if I could teach everyone I conquered Greek, they'll identify as Greeks. And they'll identify me as their emperor. I like this quote, share the gospel with everyone and when necessary, use words. <laughs> so in other words, the gospel message could be better exemplified and taught through actions than through speech, is what that's saying. Amen. Language is a divine gift given to us that can be used to edify or tear down. We can use speech to bring life or to bring death, right? You guys agree with that? So what is the most widely used language in the world, do you think? Spanish. Spanish, English. Hmm. Chinese Mandarin? (laughs) Actually, it is. Chinese Mandarin is the first most widely used language in the world. And some would say the hardest language to learn. English, what I'm speaking now, some say is the third hardest language in the world to learn. But what's interesting, if you look at people who learn a new language and then speak that language, did you know that there's more people who learn English as a second language and speak it worldwide? So of native speakers, Mandarin, or Chinese Mandarin wins out. But of second language speakers, English wins out by far. It's interesting. It's kind of like English is becoming like this worldwide language just in, a, in a way. But here's some, some charts, we don't need to look at those. This is a Twitter, how Twitter breaks out their different languages and how it distributes the tweets into different languages. But it, you see English is here, and English is becoming kind of the, the language of commerce, you could say. The language of the internet, you could say, as well. But native speakers, like I said, Mandarin Chinese, non-native speakers, there's about two billion English speakers that learn it as a second language. So what are the two greatest economies in the world? America and the Chinese. Yeah, United States of America and the Chinese economy. Do so you see how language corresponds with wealth and GDP and economics? And, you know, are, are, there, are they at odds? Yeah. At all? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what influences language, the usage the most? If you speak Lusoga in Uganda, what's going to prompt you and motivate you to want to learn English? Well, you can communicate with everybody. Why? Why do you want to communicate with everybody? Why even bother doing that work? What? What? Money, more success, yeah, business, more opportunities, right? So economics drive language, AKA money, wealth, and legacy. In other words, making a name for yourself. It drives your language, drives your desire to want to learn the language. That's why when I teach biblical Hebrew, I teach a 3,500 year old language. I have to tell people, listen, there is no practical application of this language. Other than to be able to study the Torah, to be able to study God's word. It is not making a name for yourself. Now, you might take the Hebrew language and go on YouTube and try to make a name for yourself and be this and that. But really, it's very little practical application for learning ancient biblical Hebrew. It's to study God's word. Modern Hebrew Hebrew perhaps, yeah. yeah. So what does the Tower of Babel represent for us? It represents false or coerced unity. It represents exploitation of humans, and it represents pride. And I just put this little blurb in there, I was thinking um, yesterday morning, a false or coerced unity with an unjust king always comes with a cost. The cost is typically the exploitation of human lives and labor and is predicated upon a false system of morality. In other words, like a redefining of what is righteousness and what is unrighteousness. So be careful of that. In order for the king to get his way and to manipulate the the people he's governing, he has to create this false system of morality. This is a sin. This is not a sin. And it usually completely contradicts with the word of God. Did God ever interact with language again? After the Tower of Babel? What do you think? Well, yes, he did. did. And it's right here in Exodus 20. You might be thinking, wait, what? Go to Exodus 20 with me. We're going to do a little bit of reading here. But you guys know this story. This is the Charlton Heston moment, right? This is when Charlton Heston leads the people of Israel. No, I'm just kidding. Moses leads the people of Israel up to Mount Sinai. Why are they there? Because God wants to give these former slaves righteous laws and decrees so that they can live by them and be free and have life, but also take them to the nations around them as well. And here he gives these 10 decrees, what we know in Deuteronomy as the 10 commandments. But it's interesting, if you look at verse 18 of Exodus 20, verse 18, how does it go for them? There's fire, there's smoke, there's a loud shofar blast on top of this, this mountain. How do they react? It says in verse 18, or some, and if, I think it's some some translations at Verse 21. So the people stood back at a distance, but Moshe approached the thick darkness where God was. It didn't go well with them, right? Let's back up to verse 15 and figure out why. It says that all the people experienced the kolot. If your if your translation has thunder there, that's an that's an accurate translation. But the Hebrew word kol cold is thunder but it's also voices they heard the voices and they saw the lightning is not a good translation the hebrew word there is lapidim lapidim are torches or like tongues of fire so they saw like tongues of fire and and like all these torches coming down off the mountain and they heard all these voices And the sound of the shofar and the mountain smoking, the people saw it, they trembled, and they stood at a distance. And they said to Moshe, you speak with us, and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us, or we will die. So it's interesting. The sages actually say that, what is this, voices? How, How do they hear voices? It's because, you guys remember, there was a mixed multitude standing at the base of the mountain with the Israelites. Remember that? These are people from all around the world, all around Egypt and everywhere else that have pledged their allegiance to the God of Israel and they left Egypt and then they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai. Do they speak the language that God is speaking? No, they speak all these different languages. So the sages say, you know what? This is God speaking and his voice, miraculously splitting itself into 70 different languages for all the mixed multitude to be able to hear. So was the miracle happening there in their ears? Was he speaking one language and then it split itself? Or was he simultaneously speaking 70 different languages? We don't, know. Don't, know. We don't know. I don't know. But what we do know is that the mixed multitude was there. And there was these these like, weird tongues of fire thing. These torches. These lapidim. So Moses, long story short, goes up on the mountain, right? He gets the tablets. And he comes down from the mountain after 40 days. And he sees all the Israelites just hanging out, waiting for him patiently, waiting to be obedient, Right? No, if you watch the Ten Commandments of Charlton Heston, you know that they erected a golden calf. And they were dancing around that calf and performing all kinds of debaucheries and all kinds of stuff, right? And then Moses gets triggered and smashes the tablets, right? And then he tells the Levites, Levites, put on your swords. Go through the camp and slay your kinsmen. Take a wild guess at how many died that day at the hands of the Levites. 3,000 died that day. 3,000 died that day. Moses has to go back up a second time and get another set of tablets. It doesn't go well with him, right? But there, God interacts with language. He crosses linguistic barriers. So he says, in short, those same nations to whom you're supposed to teach my righteous decrees are the same nations I will use to discipline you, Israel, if you disobey my decrees. Take it to them and teach it to them. Or else it's going to fall back on your head, in other words. You look at Deuteronomy 28. Turn there with me real quick. Deuteronomy 28. Guys, I'm going to have you flipping all through your Bibles today. Deuteronomy 28. If it gets too warm in here, um, Howard or somebody, feel free to bump the AC down or anything like that. Deuteronomy 28. Let's look at verse 45 to 51. Deuteronomy 28. Verse 45. He says, all these curses will come upon you, pursuing you and overtaking you until you're destroyed because you didn't pay attention to what Adonai your God said, observing his commandments, his regulations that he gave you. These curses will be on you and your descendants as a sign and as a wonder because you didn't serve the Lord your God with joy and with gladness in your heart when you had such an abundance of everything. Adonai the Lord will send your enemy against you and you will serve him when you are hungry, thirsty, Poorly clothed and lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he destroys you. Yes, Adonai will bring against you a nation from far away that will swoop down on you from the end of the earth. Remember that end of the earth thing, okay? From the end of the earth like a vulture. A nation whose lashon you did not understand. Interesting. So he's using a different language and a different people to punish his people for being disobedient. Does that happen? it does people of israel disobey right and then in the 700s bc the northern kingdom of israel is taken away by the syrians then in 586 same thing happens to the kingdom of judah the southern kingdom down here they're taken away by the babylonians it's called exile and it's always to the direction of east did you notice where they built the tower So long story short here, according to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, in 538 BC, the Jews, 70 years later, were allowed to return back from Babylon. As far as we know, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, never had that moment of like, okay, let's return. But the the Jewish nation did. And 50,000 Jews made Aliyah to the land of Israel following the decree of Cyrus, as described in Ezra, whereas most of them remain in Babylon. Okay? So we got to return. Now, let's fast forward to 63 BC. A new army comes on, a new foreign language. A new foreign army is going to come down and swoop down like a vulture on the people of Israel. And that is the Roman army. General Pompey of the Roman army, in 63 BC, he surrounds Judea and he conquers Judea. And they set up shop. Now, the land of Judea is a Roman province. And it puts a nice finishing touch over here on the expansion of the Roman Empire. So now they own the entire Mediterranean basin, basically. And this is going to be the case right up until the times of Acts chapter 2. The Romans are set up, they set up shop. Remember in Mark, Yeshua says that go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. What what, what was God telling the, the, the people of Israel to do? Go into all the world. Teach them these righteous decrees. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in glosa kinos. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, they will not hurt them at all. So in other words, he's going to give them this new language. It's interesting. This like divine ability to learn a language or to speak a language. A gloso, glosa kinos. now, we get to go to Acts chapter two. We've set all this up where we can finally open the pages of Acts chapter two. And you gotta remember that most of the people who are carried away into exile are still there. You know, when, one thing I failed to mention, when Pompey co- uh, conquers the land of Israel down here, the land of Judea, not only do they conquer the land of Judea, but they carry away hundreds of thousands of Jewish slaves and distribute them and sell them in all the various provinces in Asia Minor and in North Africa. So 63 years before the birth of Messiah, there's hundreds of thousands of Jewish slaves going out all around the Mediterranean Basin. We talked about this two weeks ago. Do you remember that? So you got to remember that. It's important to keep that in mind. So Acts chapter two, it says the festival of Pentecost Shavuot Now what was Shavuot An anniversary of? The giving of the law On Mount Sinai So you gotta think Like they're thinking here They're in Jerusalem Celebrating the anniversary Of the giving of the law On Mount Sinai And how did that go for them? 1500 years prior they were scared. Not very well yeah. They're there though And the believers All gather together In one place Which place? Many people automatically think, upper room. No, it doesn't say the upper room. They were in the upper room earlier, but I'm going to prove to you here in a little while it's probably not the upper room. Suddenly, there came a sound from the sky. Wait, we heard that before. Mount Sinai. Like a roar of a violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then they saw what looked like what? Lapidim, the torches are back. And they heard the believers speaking, I'm sorry, I went too far, tongues of fire which separated and came to rest on each one of them. They were all filled with the Ruach kakodesh, the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it's Numa. And began to speak different glasa, different languages, as the Numa, the Spirit, gave them an ability to speak. Now, there were staying in Yerushalayim, Jews from every nation under heaven, you got to remember that Shavuot, Pentecost, is a pilgrimage feast. So all Jewish males need to go report to Jerusalem on Pentecost. Well, when they heard this sound, a crowd gathered and they were confused. Because each one heard the believers speaking in his own dialecto. Totally amazed. They asked, how is this possible? Aren't these people who are speaking from the Galilee?" How do they know they're from the Galil? They speak they yeah, but they, they, here they're speaking their own language. How do they know they're from the Galileo? I don't know. Maybe their dress or maybe their behavior or something like that. Something it's gave it away that they're from the it's Galil, yeah. How is it that we hear them speaking in our own native dialecto? We are Parthians. We are Medes. We are Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. Wait a second. Where did Pompey take all these Jewish slaves? To all of those places. Right. Yehuda, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome. We here oh, were there Jews by birth and proselytes? Jews from Crete and Arabia. How is it we speaking, hear them speaking in our own Glasa about the great things God has done. Amazed and confused, they all went on asking each other, what can this mean? You gotta remember, when's the last time that God interacted with languages like this? It was on this day, 1,500 years prior. Right? There's a lot of weird similarities, right, so far? Maybe Luke is trying to tie it back to that? So they say, uh, "Oh, they they had too much wine, right? They're drunk. Because guys, you gotta believe that if if I miraculously start speaking a different language to you, And I'm like, what is going on? I'm speaking a different language. I'm gonna act pretty drunk, right? We're all gonna act pretty weird. If we all start doing that to each other and speaking different languages to each other, and then people are able to come in here and understand it, we would all act a little bit erratic, right? And excited. So then Peter, Kippa, he stood up with the 11 and raised his voice and addressed them. He said, you Judeans and all of you staying here in Jerusalem, let me tell you what this means. Now listen carefully to me. He said, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, which is one of the Jewish prayer times, by the way. Now, this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. He says, the Lord said in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon everyone. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my slaves, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will perform miracles in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and thick smoke. The sun will become dark the moon blood before the great and fearful day of the Lord comes. And then whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's quoting Joel chapter 3 there. Or Joel 2 if you have a Christian Bible. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Yeshua from Nazareth was a man to demonstrated to you to have been from God by the powerful works and miracles and signs that he performed through his, his presence. You yourselves know this. This man was arrested in accordance with God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. And through the agency of persons that are not bound by the Torah, you nailed him on a stake and killed him. But God raised him up and freed him from the suffering of death. It was impossible that death could keep his hold on him. For David wrote this about him. You guys remember he's quoting Psalm 16 now. David wrote this. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand so that i will not be shaken for this reason my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced now my body too will live on in certain hope that you will not abandon me to shit oh, or let your holy one remember your chasid your holy one see decay you have made known to me the ways of life you will fill me with joy by your presence so here you could say oh that's talking about david well peter is going to say no it's not he says brothers i know I can say to you frankly that the patriarch David died, was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, since he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn an oath to him, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne, he was speaking in advance about the resurrection of Messiah, that it was he who was not abandoned to Sheol and whose flesh did not see decay. God raised up this Yeshua, and we all witnessed it. Moreover, he has been exalted to the right hand of God has received from the Father what he promised, namely the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, and has poured out his gifts, which you're both seeing and hearing now. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says, Adonai sit, sit, uh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel... Remember, they're thinking gospel means... The restoration of the kingdom of Israel, right? Let the whole house of Israel know beyond doubt that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Yeshua whom you had executed on a stake. On hearing this, they were stung in their hearts and they said to Peter and the other emissaries, brothers, what should we do? And Kepha, Peter said to them, turn from your sin, return to God and each of you be immersed in the authority of the Messiah, Yeshua, into forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Ruach of Kodesh. For the promise is for you and for your children and for those far away, as many as our God has called. So he pressed his case with many of their arguments and kept pleading with them. He said, save yourselves from this perverse generation. So those who accepted what he said were immersed. And they were added to the group that day. How many? Three thousand. Three thousand. So wait a second, we're on the anniversary of Pentecost. And on the anniversary of Sinai, I should say, there is a deep belief in the message that they're hearing now. There's tongues of fire, there's different languages. And then how many people are added to their number as opposed to being taken away? 3,000. So they were immersed. You know, this is the only place you can immerse 3,000 people is around the Temple Mount where there's lots of immersion baths there. I believe this is probably taking somewhere, some someplace near or in Solomon's colonnade. They continued faithfully in the teaching of the emissaries, in fellowship, in a breaking of bread, and in, the, in the prayers. Everyone was filled with awe, and many miracles and signs took place through the emissaries. All those trusting Yeshua stayed together and had everything in common. In fact, some of them, or they even sold their property and possessions and distributed the proceeds to all who were in need. You see here, what they're doing is what the Torah expects of us. That we would do justice and mercy and have compassion on the foreigner, on the stranger. So it's like the giving, the the anniversary of the giving of the law. But now he's taking a piece of that divine presence that came down on Mount Sinai. And he's putting it in each of us. And then using that Holy Spirit to write that Torah on our conscience and on our will So that we'll just want to do that We'll be prompted to do that Like the people of Israel were to do At the base of Mount Sinai But because of their unbelief they didn't fulfill it And here he's like Look, I'm going to hit a reset button Now I'm going to put this inside you I'm going to write it on your hearts So verse 46 And then we need to run over to Jeremiah 31 real quick Continuing faithfully and with singleness of purpose To meet in the temple courts daily Wait why are they meeting in the temple daily? Because that's the center of their faith, the center of their universe. And breaking bread in several homes, they shared their food and joy and simplicity of heart, praising God and having the respect of all people. And day after day, the Lord kept adding to those who were being saved. So is there any sort of, you know, like uh, prophetic passage about the Torah being written on the hearts of men? On the new covenant? That that would be part of this new covenant that God would make with the people of Israel? Is there anything in the prophets? Do they foretell that? That he would write the law on their hearts? Yeah, of course. Because he doesn't do anything without first revealing it to his prophets. Here, look at Jeremiah 31, verse 30. He says, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will make a brit chadasha, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It won't be like that covenant I made with their forefathers on that day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt because they, they violated that covenant. Even though I, I did my part and was like a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the Southern Baptists and the United Methodists. No, I'm just kidding. This is the covenant I will make with who? The house of Israel. Those day, after those days, says the Lord. I will put my Torah within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And that is what it's all about. Via the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit drives us to the Word of God. It convicts us. It is constantly writing His Word and His will and His character on our hearts. It teaches us, yeah. So, hey, hon, something interesting happened this year in Jerusalem during the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost. Let me tell you about it, right? So, you traveled all this way to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Shavuot, to celebrate Pentecost. What are you gonna talk about when you get home after you've witnessed all these things? Something interesting happened. People were speaking in different languages. I watched a a rabbi who was doing miracles get executed and then people were saying he rose from the dead and they saw him multiple times. And then 3,000 people were added to this movement of people and I got added to this movement of people as well and I believe that this man they had crucified and that rose from the dead, I believe that he is the Messiah of Israel. So you're going to go back to your hometown, back to Pamphylia, back to Galatia, back to Colossae. You're going to go back to all these different places. And you better believe that you're going to tell you all your friends about it, right? Oh, yeah. Something interesting happened this year in Jerusalem. Something different. It was kind of the same, but it was different. You are being invited into a kingdom. You're being invited into that kingdom, not forced, with a just king. In this kingdom... Service to one another is the currency, unlike Babylon, right? The God of heaven desires to regather not only his people Israel, but also every tribe and every tongue under heaven. He likes to interact with our language, doesn't he? He is fulfilling us, he's filling us with a piece of the divine presence, the Holy Spirit, which will equip us to cross linguistic barriers for the sake of the gospel going forth into the ends of the earth. Instead of the nations being a source of divine punishment, we will instead be a blessing to the nations. There it is, right there in a nutshell. Remember Acts 1. Go to Jerusalem and wait. Remember, Yeshua tells his disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait. You will receive the Holy Spirit, and you will be my, the Greek there is, martyrs, even to the ends of the earth. Zephaniah 3, nine even talked about this. For at that time, I will change the speech of peoples to a which if, if your translation says a, um, a, a holy tongue that's not really the case it's actually a chosen tongue it's actually a select tongue which is interesting that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord interesting he's going to flip the switch and all of us will have a select tongue and we will serve on like one accord that's interesting and here he's going to interact which is one more time in Revelation 7. This is the ultimate culmination. So go with me to Revelation 7, and I want to tell you about this. This is the moment we are living for, that we're longing for. John is describing the Lamb seated on the throne. He is describing something that he just, you can tell he's really struggling with describing. I was doing an internet search for a photo that I could put up there and I couldn't find anything that was even remotely close. It was all just like veggie tales looking stuff. And I was like, you know what? Let's just just leave it up to our imagination. But John says, after this, I looked. Well, let me back up. Look at verse five, Revelation 7, five. What do you see listed out there? All 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, it's all about the regathering and the reestablishment of the king of Israel. Now, if you're a if you're non-Jew in this room, what, do you, what does that have to do with you? Where do you fit in? You weren't born into this family. That's where Romans 11 and Ephesians 2 come into play. You are grafted in. You're like an adopted son or daughter into this family, right? You get to pull up a chair to this table. That should excite you. So verse 9. After this, I looked, John says, and there before me was a huge crowd, too large for anyone to count from every nation under heaven. So it says, pantos uh, uh, ethnos, kai philon, kai leon, kai, and this right here is our word, gloson, gloson. Every language under heaven. They were standing in front of his throne and in front of the lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they all shouted, victory to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Look at that. He is gathering every nation, every tongue, every tribe to him. And they're all saying one thing. We declare our sovereignty to you as king. You are just king. You are righteous king. This will happen when we as humans get tired of serving kings that are unjust. This will happen when we get fed up of ourselves being on the throne and instead want him on the throne. Then we will say you are are a just king. I am not worthy to be king. Are we willing to be missional with our knowledge of the gospel? What does that mean? Are we willing to be able to cross cultural and linguistic barriers if it means taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? Now, what happens sometimes when you get like 50, 60, 80 people in a room or when they're eating lunch? Sometimes what happens, unfortunately, is people get really comfortable with the same people. And I'm guilty of that as well. I'm an introvert of introverts. I like the same people, sit with them, converse with them. I know them. I, you know, it's just comfortable. But what the gospel and what the Holy Spirit compels us to want to do is to break through that uncomfortability, walk up to someone who looks totally different from us, may speak a different language, and share with them the love of Yeshua. And say, have you been adopted into this family? There's a beautiful poem, um, we read around the Shabbat table last night called I Stand at the Door. And it's all about a a guy who's like, you know, some go far in the house, whereas I stand at the door and I welcome people who are looking for the door. And I keep people from leaving the door that are scared of the people who are far in, who seem uh, prideful. (laughs) Look it up if you have a chance, it's called I Stand at the Door. Are we willing to cross those barriers though? And I'm so thankful for you guys. I see people crossing those barriers here all the time, and when someone comes in our door, and they are new, or they look different, or they talk different, but they don't know a lick of anything of what we do around here, you guys are so welcoming and so embracing of them, and thank you for that. I, you know, I, I appreciate people like Jim and Keitha Langley, who, she just sent me this photo, teaching people in Thailand how to celebrate Hanukkah, and teaching the gospel through the celebration of Hanukkah There's so much you know, in a photo That's just so beautiful Yeah, yeah But these are two people that you know, Are absolutely willing to cross those barriers To bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth And I think we're called to do the same We might not be in Thailand, We may not find ourselves in Uganda But absolutely there are people just Within five doors of my house That I have not even met Let alone share the gospel with Shame on me But with that, let's close in prayer and then we'll do a time of Q&A. Abba Father, I thank you for this time where we could study your word. I thank you that you promised us the Holy Spirit if we trust and believe and are immersed into the authority of Yeshua our Messiah. And I just ask that we would walk in that and we would be obedient to that and that we would be willing to cross those barriers if it means sharing the gospel with people around us and inviting them into this kingdom that is yet realized on earth. We thank you for the sacrifice these disciples made to be obedient, to trust. And we long to see signs and wonders like they saw in their day. We thank you for Yeshua who bled and died on our behalf. And may we live in a way that is worthy of that dying for. In his name I pray, amen. So guys, we have a little bit extra time. If you have questions or comments that you'd like to ask me, I don't know all the answers. What do you have? Yeah, Aline. Can you, uh, the scriptures about, uh, in yeah, she's asking, can you tell me the scriptures again about us being grafted in? Um, very good question. That's Romans chapter 11. Paul is saying, uh, you, are being, you as Gentiles are being grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. And then Ephesians 2. He says, you were once far off. You were strangers to the covenants of promises. But now, through the blood of Messiah, you've been brought near. You've been adopted. Yeah, you've been adopted, yeah. Good question, though. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say a big thank you to you for the time, <laughs> effort, and the heart that you put into teaching. Well, thank you. That really means a lot. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It meant a lot to hear this today. And just mm-hmm. in general, I learned so much. Good. Well, thank you, Sam. Your- that really means a lot. Thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah, Carol. I <laughs> appreciate Thank you, the you. Well, thank you. That really means a lot. Wow. Thank you. I'll make sure I can get those $20 bills later. on. <laughs> They're just saying uh, thank you for teaching. Is what they're saying basically. Anybody else have a comment or question? Yeah, Jason. Um, I think maybe because you had you said you, you commented I didn't. I don't know if the miracle was in the in the ears of the hearer. Yeah. Or. You know, or with the in the tongue, the syllables. Yeah. I think it was probably in the tongue because the observation. And you guys sound drunk, what are all these mm-hmm. things that they're saying because what do we tend to do when we're drunk? We're slurring our words or they don't sound the same. Yeah. So that was kind of my thought on that. I but lean that way as well. Hearing that in multiple ways and that would also kind of add to the publicity of the miracle itself right? yeah. where it's observed by other people. Yeah, really good observation. I lean that way as well and I want to give a caveat to that. Thank you guys. Um, So let me repeat Jason's observation and question. He said, um, basically, I said, you know, was the miracle happening in the ears or was it happening in the tongues in Acts chapter 2? Were they speaking a different language or were they speaking their same language, but the hearer was hearing their own language? Um, And Jason said, I tend to think that the miracle, correct me if I'm wrong, but the miracle was them speaking a new language. Is that what you said? Okay. And I I, I agree. I tend to lean that way according to Acts chapter 2. However, there are, um, there are people who would say that the miracle was happening in the ear. Um, I don't tend to lean that way, but uh, I, I, would, I would think, well, why? There, so there's different camps in this. So some people would say that the miracle was happening in the ear. Some people would say that the people were speaking incoherent syllables, and the miracle was still happening in the ear. And then some people were speaking, say that they were speaking a completely new language, and there was no miracle in the ear. I hope that makes sense. Um, I tend to be what you said, that they were speaking a new language and that there was no miracle in the ear, but the miracle was in their speech. Um, You know, I had a professor in college, uh, Dr. Mark Rutland, who prayed and fasted and said, uh, you know, God, if you give me a new language, you give me a miracle, I will go to that country and I will spend my life uh, spreading the gospel there. And I heard him many, many times in classes and in chapel services speak perfect, fluent Spanish. Never had a Spanish lesson in his entire life. Um, And in fact, when he did any time in class do that or during chapel or something, all the Spanish speakers in the room would start laughing and applauding and cheering him and everything. But um, you hear of both. And I've heard testimonies of all of the above, basically that God um, will give someone, they'll be speaking a language that is known to them, but then someone will hear it and the miracle will be in the ear. The fact of the matter is, is that God is willing to interact with our hearing and our speaking if it means that his gospel goes forth to a different part of the world? Yeah. That's the essence of it. So I see your hand up there. Yeah, Deborah. Um, I just want to point out, there is a language of love that also reaches people even if it's the same language. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very good point. She said basically that there is a gospel there is a um, language of love. Neither you don't get a gift of speaking a new tongue or something like that, that your ability to love others um it is very powerful, yeah. Um like like that's first Corinthians chapter thirteen kind of stuff, right? If I speak with the tongues of angels but have not love, right? Yeah, Carol. And, and I think that the language comes, it comes to the heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you're such a loving person. (laughs) Everyone who knows you knows that about you. So it definitely shows. Yeah. Yeah, Aline. I know that you you didn't go as far in Deuteronomy 28. But my question is: I want to ask the question as far as Do you think, was that a prophecy of what was going to happen to them to go into? In Deuteronomy 28? Yeah. um, Yeah, Deuteronomy 28 is pre any exile. So he is saying, if you don't keep my covenant, then I will use foreign nations to draw you out of my land. They will conquer you and get you out of my land, out of my house, I guess you could say. Yeah, because it's like a marital contract, basically, that they're entering with the God of Israel, with the God of heaven. And he's saying as a bride, he's saying, looking at his bride, he's saying, you have one job, and that is to be pure and holy and faithful to me. And I will keep you in my land, keep you in my home, and provide everything for you. But they broke that end of the deal. But yeah, Deuteronomy 28, that is yet to happen. He's speaking more prophetically there that this will come upon you if you don't keep my covenant. So that happened to you. Did that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions? We've got about five minutes. Anybody have any other questions? Five or ten minutes? No other questions? (laughs) There's always that one person that's like, I don't want to be the last. I want to keep everybody Yeah, Crystal. It's it's kind of off topic a little, but I was thinking of it when you were talking about Pompeii. You know, a lot Mm -hmm. of people say that Pompeii was actually um, punished for what they did, you know, Mm. to the Jews and and also um, many very wealthy that were very involved in the crucifixion, their Mm -hmm. families and you know people that were actually in Pompeii. Do you think that there's any like truth to that, like to what happened at Pompeii? Hmm. I never thought about it. I don't know. You're talking about, like, Mount Vesuvius exploding and killing all the people in Pompeii? Yes, huh. Very wicked. Very, very wicked. I mean, perhaps. I mean, God is a God of equal weights and measures. So, yeah, I think uh, that, that terrifies me at the same time because there's some pretty evil things going on in our country. Yes. And if he's a God of equal weights and measures, um, I don't know that that's yet to catch up with us. And it, that means it's still yet to catch up with us, the evil that we perpetrate in our nation. And the death that we have perpetrated in our yes. nation of the innocents. Yes. Uh, so I don't know. I would like to say yes, but also that brings an indictment on my nation. So I'm, I'm weary of, of bringing on. So. Well, and I was thinking of that because we actually have one of the largest volcanoes <laughs> in the United States. Yeah. But yeah. were you ever to become active? They said that it would absolutely decimate the soul. Thanks. That's what I thought of. You know, when I thought of Pompeii, okay, I thought it was really Yeah. Interesting. Is that in Wyoming, Marvin wants to know? Okay, let me cross it off my hiking list (laughs) for next year. Southern California. Okay, all right, I'll cross that off my hiking list. I don't don't know how many people hike in Southern California. We actually, as a family, toured Pompeii. Interesting. Perverseness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the people there. The lanes that were dedicated to certain things. And yeah. Really, really. Yeah, she's saying she visited Pompeii, and that was one of the things that the tour guides really pointed out was just the perverseness of the people who lived there, um, probably in every aspect of life you could imagine. So, yeah. All right, Jason. I don't. I don't want to add to your anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> add to my anxiety? Oh, about my... There is a documentary called Exodus Decoded hmm. that okay. ties the events of Exodus yeah. to a volcanic event. That. Interesting, okay. That. And it's very really interesting, so... Okay, so it's yeah. uh, saying, like, the the exodus that happened 3,500 years ago is tied to maybe it, a volcanic eruption. The manifestation eruption. of the, the, the natural events created the circumstances in which... Huh, Canada interesting. And what was the name of that film? Exodus decoded. And okay. The interesting thing is I think the guy who made that documentary is a Jew but not a believer. Mm. And one okay. of the things it's really kind of laid out kind of cool and at one point in the in the documentary he says, Now understand what I'm saying. Just because you can explain how things happen doesn't mean God didn't cause them to happen. Mm. Right. Okay. And I thought, well, Very good. God especially from somebody who um, is like, a yeah. non-believer. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, thank, thank you for that comment. Wonder, uh, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. I wonder how many non-believers are really non-believers the life of key challenge, but I think the lot of them are up in Yeah. Mm. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. yeah. Any other questions? Let's take one more question or comment. Anything else, guys? Yeah. No? Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't get your name. My name's Will, I'm Will, okay, good to meet you, Will. Um I wanted to go off the table, weights, and measures. And that means it's already actually faced with the weights and measures. Think about the Civil War. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. The war that we had were from the Revolutionary War to Vietnam, all the death tolls. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. It, well, that was the, way of the sin of our slaves. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. hmm I know. So what Will said is basically uh, we may have in some way experienced one of the leveling of the, the weights and measures with our in regards to slavery, and that is the death toll brought on with the civil war. Um, no conflict, if I'm not mistaken, no conflict. I, I think all the conflicts com- combined in US history do not equal the, all the, way up the death. To the middle, like, towards the very end of Vietnam. Towards the we, very we end of finally, Vietnam. finally above the total death of, the, uh, of overall minus. Yeah, so, so you catch that. So every war, if you take all the American casualties since the right. Civil War and add them all together right up to the end of the, of the Vietnam War, then you finally hit how many lives we lost in the Civil War. Um, that's yeah, it's very profound. Yeah, huh. humans can be jerks, can't they? Yeah. <laughs> we need a redeemer, don't we? Yes, amen. We sure do. We need to be regenerated and recreated.